Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Friday, October 19th, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And look, I do not think that we have perfected society, not by any means. We still got some big problems, even in Western nations. But what we seem to have done is we've skipped the step where we get everything right, and we've gone directly to the step where we start fucking up the things that are actually working. Case in point, the international mail system. Who even thinks of the international mail system? The Trump administration does. It has announced its intention to withdraw from the universal postal union, the 144-year-old universal postal union is the postal regulatory body. And the reason Trump wants out is that they refuse to put him on a stamp. No, that is not it. It is because China has some cheap postal rates and U.S. manufacturers would like to stick it to China, make them pay more to mail you their things. I guess that's doable. I hope when the United States gets in this little, tiny little international body proxy war. I just hope they don't wreck the whole thing that's been going pretty well. It's, it's this nice functioning bureaucracy. You mail something from Singapore to Sweden, it gets there. It's kind of a miracle. Here we are trying to fuck it up. Let's hope we're just tweaking it, right? And then when, when it gets right, eventually all the world leaders can get together and instead of touching a glowing orb, they can group lick a luminescent envelope. Another sign of the, hey, it's working, let's fuck it up idea, is European clocks. Finland, resentful of being two minutes late to all meetings, wants to scrap clock standardization. The Finns are thinking, you know, 136. That's a very below 60th degree north latitude way of thinking about it. We look at the hourglass as half empty. No, seriously, the Finns are just among the countries who want to scrap uh, their version of daylight savings time, a little fall back, spring forward. And of the 28 EU nations, they're at each other's throat. Some say, I think quite sensibly, look, we got together on the time. It's no small thing. You know, a train leaves Munich at a certain time. It arrives in Latvia at another time. Not only is it a wondrous question to put on the European version of the ACT, it means we can actually synchronize our clocks. Isn't that great? And in fact, the Wall Street Journal today quoted a professor of chronobiology who is German, and she says, without the extra daylight, we Europeans will become fatter, dumber, and grumpier. But there are objections in Ireland. They're worried about the cows. Cows like to get milked every 12 hours on the fall back spring forward day. It's like an 11-hour milking cycle. No one thought to tell the Irish milkmaids, maybe you can adjust your schedule. No, the Irish cows. The Italian minister to the EU, in an attempt to show just how easy changing the time is, put his hand out and touched the hour hand on the big clock on the wall of the European Parliament and moved it. 
but the Finns weren't impressed because a Finnish minister, this is true, complained that old people and their microwaves just aren't getting in step. Soon, I suspect the only people who even get the reference to the time on the microwave will be old people. And if we get it, who are we making fun of? I guess the uh, super old who died before us. This is the Internet of Things, people. Time waits for no man. In a way, I guess, this commitment to retarding progress, and by the way, for the record, I think the Europeans should stay synchronized, but the fact that this is the thing they're fighting about, that's a kind of progress. Because it used to be that every few decades, and I don't know if you know this, Europe erupted in a horribly bloody war. And now they kind of just do things like Brexit and argue about the time. In the past, a country like England might have gotten involved in the Hundred Years' War when they were upset at things, right? The Battle of Agincourt. Now he who sets his watch by me shall be my brother. And gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed that they had to wake up an hour earlier because of the Irish cows and Finnish microwaves. On the show today, it's a debate roundup. And I want to tease this segment by playing a guessing game. The answer will be revealed at the end of the show. What word or phrase do you think completes this assertion of North Dakota Democrat Heidi Heitkamp? There is no greater responsibility that I have to North Dakota. But first, he's a journalist who thought of one great way to get one great story. And that story is how a private prison works. So yeah, he became a prison guard. It almost destroyed him. But now Shane Bauer is here to tell the tale. American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment. Now, the thing is, the reporter, who is Shane Bauer, who is with me here, had an even more bizarre story than you would glean just from the fact that he went undercover and became a prison guard. He was actually a prisoner years before, a prisoner of a hostile country. But you know what? For many American prisoners, the distinction between hostile country and their homeland is pretty much lost. Shane, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So let's start with your arrest in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, was it trumped up charges? You wandered into their land? Yeah, How, I was. Uh, yeah, so what did you do wrong, according to them? I was living in the Middle East, living in Syria, actually, as a reporter in 2000, working as a reporter in 2009. Who were you reporting for? Uh, I was freelancing at the time. Uh, I had been freelancing for Mother Jones Nation, several newspapers. And I took a trip to Iraqi Kurdistan, which w- actually wasn't a reporting trip. I did went with a couple of friends, and uh, we... Kurdistan at the time was uh, safe. There was actually a small tourist industry. And we went uh, for a hike mm-hmm. um, near a waterfall, which is kind of a local like Kurdish tourist site. We got to the uh, Iran-Iraq border unknowingly and uh, were called by some soldiers, which we thought were Iraqis. It turns out they were Iranian. The Kurdish soldiers, you thought? Uh, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah. they were Iranian. And uh, in going to them, we crossed the border, spent 26 months in prison. Um, I wasn't actually charged until I'd been there for two years charged with uh, illegal entry and espionage. What was detention like? I was in solitary confinement for four months, uh, spent the rest of the time uh, double-celled with my friend Josh Vitale, uh, but were otherwise cut off from the rest of the world. Uh, We were interrogated for a few months. What was interrogation like? Uh, You know, they would just ask us questions about our lives, about what we were doing uh, at the border. Um, We'd be blindfolded. It was a... a, the political ward of the prison. So the other people in the prison were 
uh, pro-democracy activists. Uh, there were some uh, members of Al-Qaeda there. It was kind of arranged, but we were all isolated from each yeah, other. Yeah, kind of arranged. Someone freelancing for the nation and Al-Qaeda. So what was the time period between your release and your undertaking this assignment in the book? I got out of prison in 2011. I uh, took the job as a prison guard at the very end of 2014. So it was about three years. When you got back, uh, how soon did you start reporting on any subject? Um, I would say... Uh, I think it was around five, six months. And I actually thought I was going to go back to the Middle East. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where I started my career. I speak Arabic. And, you know, the Arab Spring was underway. Uh, but when I got out, there was a huge hunger strike happening in California prisons uh, over uh, the use of long-term solitary confinement. So I was kind of naturally drawn to it, having been in solitary myself. It involved uh, some 30,000 prisoners at one point. It was huge. So when I start feeling ready to go back to reporting, I uh, was looking into that. And, and we should say up, you did. You used a hunger strike uh, effectively when you were in Iran. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I would use it to get, uh, to pressure them to let let me see my friends or uh, reinstate or, you know, giving us letters for our families, things because like you that. Because knew, you knew that you were worth yeah. more to them alive. Right. You made right, that right. correct calculation. Right. Unlike perhaps a lot of the American prisons. Yeah, yeah. So I, the first project I did was a deep dive into our use of solitary confinement in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and uh, found that in California we had uh, thousands of prisoners, several thousand prisoners who had been in solitary for more than 10 years, some as, mo- as much as 40 years. Uh, people who hadn't necessarily committed violent crimes. Uh, some people were in uh, because they were jailhouse lawyers or uh, were kind of organizing around conditions. Um, so I, I dove deep into that, um, and then I, you know, I never really decided, okay, I'm going to write about the U.S. prison system now, but there, it's just so vast. You know, we have the largest prison population in the entire world, uh, over 2 million people, and uh, I just kept going from one story to the other, and it was very frustrating, you know, writing about American prisons. They're very hard to get access to. Yeah. And I was also, you know, curious about private prisons. Um, I'd mostly been writing about, you know, public stuff, but they are even more difficult to get information from. I mean, a lot of states, when you try to do, like, public records requests with prisons, they won't respond to you unless you sue them. These are public prisons. Private prisons aren't even public institutions, so they don't even apply. And, you know, I realized that since these companies started in the 80s, we haven't really had, like, a kind of up-close look to the daily life inside these prisons. We've been, reporters have been reporting on them through lawsuits um, and, you know, kind of outside these, you know, getting the, at the contours of them. But I wanted to get inside, so I um, I thought about applying uh, as a prison guard. I didn't honestly think it was going to work. You know, I just filled out an application on their website. and uh, By their website, how did you choose which specific company and which specific state? I actually applied uh, both to... Uh, the Corrections Corporation of America and the Geo Group. And when I filled out the application, uh, you just kind of click boxes of what prisons you want to send it to. And I just kind of clicked to the hand, maybe five, ten of them. Yeah. And like just the sent co- it off. Like the common application for a college. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. And then in a, within a couple of weeks, I started getting phone calls of for job interviews. What did they, so in training, what did they emphasize uh, you would have to bring to the job in terms of skills? I mean, there were no skill requirements. A lot of my other cadets, there was one that was 18 years old who the only other job he'd ever had was Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, you know, a lot of kids out of high school. There were a bunch of single moms, you know, who just kind of needed health insurance for their kids. Um, so, you know, the training would be things like, you know, 
there was a lot of emphasis on the company's kind of liability. They didn't necessarily put it in these words, but an example is um, on the, my second day of training, we were asked what we do if we see two inmates stabbing each other. And uh, some people said, oh, you know, break them up or whatever. And he said uh, that our job is to just shout at them, stop fighting and nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you know, if you do that, then that's, that's, you've covered your uh, requirements. And he said, uh, if those wa- fools want to cut each other up, happy cutting. You know, so it was kind of like we, we tell them to stop. That's kind of intervening technically, but we're not getting in the way where we might get injured uh, and cost the company money. But a lot of the training was us honestly just sitting around. There were often no instructors uh, there uh, because the prison was so understaffed. They had to work in the prison. Uh, so we were just kind of punching the clock a lot of the time. I mean, when you were doing training, were you exposed to actual prisoners? Was it in a separate room on the prison grounds, or did you get to walk through the cell blocks? We were mostly in a classroom, but we would go into the prison sometimes. We would do—they they use the cadets a lot for um, shakedowns, so we would go in and search. They would take the inmates out of a dorm, and we would search their uh, lockers, yeah. things like that. Um, and then we had— uh, three days of on-the-job training before we... So we would basically shadow another guard before we started. And was the message pretty much that the prisoners are the enemy? Uh, the message, I would say, was um, prisoners are manipulative and they will try to, to manipulate you. That, this is a constant theme. It was like, you know, if a prisoner um, complains to you about another prisoner or a guard or conditions or if a prisoner is nice to you, if a prisoner is complimenting you on your job, really any kind of interaction is... Um, type of manipulation. Yeah. Um, and I think, one, uh, prisoners do do that. There's some uh, truth to that. Yeah. You document a lot of times yeah, when yeah, that yeah, was the yeah. case. Yeah. Uh, but I think also a function of that is kind of getting us this mentality of separating ourselves, um, you know, from the prisoners and kind of uh, having some kind of uh, emotional distance and seeing them as, as different from us in some way. You must have realized that this wasn't just an assignment and you would change somewhat. Yeah. So was it was the surprising thing the degree to which you changed or what form the change took? Uh, I would say the degree to which I changed surprised me. Um, I've, the longer I was there, I felt like the person I was in the prison and the person I was outside of the prison were growing farther apart. You know, I would come home, take my notes. I would be kind of in my role as journalist, just writing and trying to get everything down. In the prison, I, it was really all about being a guard and managing this kind of very complex power dynamic that's in the prison. And, you know, I felt like there were times when I would, it was like I forgot about being a journalist and mm-hmm. would be kind of vengeful sometimes. And, uh, I mean, part of it was that there was just so much pressure on us. I mean, I was managing 350 inmates with basically with one other guard who was 60-some years old, you know. It was literally impossible for us to do the, all of our duties uh, with that number. Yeah. Um, so it's just you're in this kind of cauldron of people who were all frustrated and angry, the prisoners and the guards. That they, yeah. uh, and, and sometimes you would even see the prisoners and guards bonding over their disdain for the company. But, you know, when it comes down to it, we still would clash, you know, because yes. we're locking them up. Perhaps listeners or a reader might think, well, it's in a prison. It's very regimented. You can at least give yourself over to following the rules. But as you point out, they gave you an impossible situation. So, for instance, there was this procedure where you'd call everyone for yard, and by letter of the law, if they're not ready, they're not going to the yard. But, of course, they'd never be ready. And then what do you do? Never give them yard. And then you have a problem on your hands, and it's a ratio of hundreds to one. So my observation would be, 
you know, since it's making you make all these decisions, that carries a heavy psychic cost, I would think. Yeah, it does. I mean, you, you know, you and I would say not just me, but I think most of the guards that came in there, they weren't sadistic. They were just yeah. people that needed jobs and wanted to be decent people. Um, you don't, you know, when somebody's standing at the bars uh, saying, I want to go outside, you know, you don't want to just say like, oh, sorry, you're too late. You have to yeah. stay locked up all day, you know. But it's exhausting, you know. It's just utterly exhausting kind of dealing because that's one person out of 350 and you're just constantly kind of having to, you know, deal with uh, just a multitude of demands in a place where people are frustrated that their, you know, classes are getting cut all the time, that their rec time is getting cut all the time, that their health care is bad, uh, their food is bad, Um you know, so there's, it's just like you're dealing with a situation that is, you're put in a situation that is so bad that you can't fix. So if you were to recommend a couple reforms, uh, what would, what would they be? Uh, either swing for the fences or just tell me a couple things. Maybe we'll mm-hmm. do, give me two big ones and give me two ones that are more or less easily implemented within the structure we have. Yeah. It's a huge question. Um, if we're just talking about prisons, I mean, I think that private prisons are not workable. Um, the, the margin of profit is not that big. And, you know, private prisons have generally um, higher levels of violence. Uh, they're lower staffed uh, and worse medical care and also less uh, programs, kind of rehabilitative programs. Once you bring those things back, and I want to point out that, you know, if we brought these things to the level of public prisons, th- these prisons would still be abysmal. I mean, mm-hmm. public prisons are not, are in this country are terrible. But even to bring them to the level of public prisons, you're going to lose this kind of uh, profit margin and also the cost saving for the state. So it's kind of like, you know, if you want to save money, you have to just allow these terrible prisons to exist. Uh, once they're regulated, you know, the whole purpose for them existing goes away. Um, so I think it's pretty clear that these prisons should not exist. But the the other issue is that, you know, prisons are kind of the, the last step in a long problem. We have private prisons uh, because we have so many people in prison. You know, we have a massive prison population that does not exist anywhere else in the world. And this is an issue of sentencing, it's an issue of uh, policing, it's an issue of American racism, it's an issue of prosecutorial power. And until we deal with these things, prison conditions in some ways is just kind of window dressing. I know there are a couple simple things though. Yeah, what you're saying is true, but good luck with instituting that. Yeah, well, I mean, as far as getting rid of private prisons, I mean, last uh, year, or not last year, but the end of the Obama administration, uh, that actually did happen on Mm -hmm. the federal level. Um, the uh, Obama administration, a few weeks after my article came out, uh, announced that they were going to stop using private prisons. And the stock price of of core civic dropped by half. Yeah. Um, and guess what? Uh, then Trump gets yeah, elected. Trump and it got goes elected. Up by 50%. Exactly. The day he got elected, it's the the share price of this company rose more than any other company in the stock market. Um, they're now doing very well. But, you know, that's just to say that um, it's not out of the question that we could actually stop using these prisons. Shane Bauer is the author of American Prison, a reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment. Thanks a lot, Shane. Thanks.
Let me tell you about the next Slate Live event that I'm involved in. Slate's best political minds will break down the midterm elections and possibly just break down, depending on the results of the midterm elections, in a live conversation in Brooklyn. It'll be me, Jamel Bowie, Dahlia Lithwick, and Jim Newell at the Polanski Shakespeare Center. I can walk there. I know where that is. That will be the Thursday after Election Day, which is to say November 8th. That will be November 8th. Join us for the lively recap discussion. We'll take your questions, too. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets to that event. And now the spiel. Politics is a game governed by few rules, as Missouri Senator Clara McCaskill learned in her debate with Josh Hawley. I'm I'm confused about, I just want to make sure I know what the rules are. Do I answer, do we both answer questions or just one of us? McCaskill soon learned that the specifics may change, but the basic rule of politics obtain. A spiffy soundbite goes pretty far to obscure a nonsensical strategy. Uh, Listen, we are in a trade war. It is a trade war that we did not start. Certainly our farmers didn't start it. China started it uh, many years ago. But if we're going to be in the war, I'm for winning it. That was Hawley launching into an inaccurate description of the genesis of the trade war and then landing the dismount with this spectacular pander. I want to pick winners and losers. I want to pick Missouri farmers as winners, and I want to pick China as a loser. And if you think that deserved an oi, there was the following assertion about military funding. Now, the U.S., of course, has the largest military in the world, larger than the next 10 countries combined. She also supported military cuts, uh, drastic to the bone cuts to our military. I've got a sister who's a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy. She's told me about the effect of those cuts on troop morale, on readiness that Senator McCaskill has supported. Now, side note, Bernie Sanders campaigned on the idea that the U.S. military spends more than the next 12 countries combined, and Barack Obama, you say it's the next eight countries, but I looked it up. Right now, it seems to be the next 10 countries combined. The point is, there is no military cuts to the bone. There is no need to be disheartened or for morale to crash. Come on, Lieutenant Commander, buck up. Don't snowflake out on us over the giant appropriations of our massive war machine. Josh Hawley is, to my eyes, at least as good-looking as Beto O'Rourke, and he employed a kind of even-keeled tone. And whenever an audience member asked a question, Hawley did the Clinton-esque thing of leaving the podium and walking right up to the member of the audience. McCaskill just stayed behind the podium. But Hawley seemed really calculated. For instance, the sister in the military experiencing low morale. Maybe that was put in there just to kind of mention that he has a sister in the military, throwing that out there. And then there was this reference to his son. Maybe he was trying to make a point that's more than the surface point he seems to be making. First of all, let me say that this is an issue that's that's personal to me, as you know. Um, Earlier this year, my wife and I learned that uh, my older boy, uh, our five-year-old, has a rare chronic illness. It's a a hip and and, uh, joint condition, a pre-existing condition. And uh, we're on the the front end of uh, that journey with him uh, and as a family. Okay. I do not know exactly what Elijah Hawley's condition is. Pre-existing condition. Well, it's only a pre-existing condition if... Hawley didn't have insurance, and then Hawley found out that his son had the condition. I mean, since Hawley has insurance as attorney general or will have insurance as senator, just a condition that will be covered. It's not a pre-existing condition. But what's really going on here is that Hawley is among the attorney generals who have sued 
to toss out Obamacare. And if that happens, the mandatory coverage of pre-existing conditions would go away. Now, sure, Hawley says, I don't want it to go away. I'd like to pass a law, should my suit win, that corrects for that. But it would take time to pass a law and a bunch of people with real pre-existing conditions and not a dad who has great insurance, they really would not be able to get health insurance. So, When Hawley put his five-year-old son, didn't just mention him in the debate, but when he put his son in a campaign ad to kind of try to obscure what his actual suit against Obamacare would do, McCaskill and a lot of her supporters objected. A McCaskill supporter called this use of Elijah Hawley a prop. McCaskill tweeted it out, and then Josh Hawley went on the campaign trail and got all upset. Because late last night, Senator McCaskill took to Twitter... And she put up on Twitter statements of her co-author, a guy she wrote a book with, helped write her memoir, in which he refers to my son, my five-year-old son, who has a pre-existing condition that I've shared some about. Maybe some of you have seen that. He's five years old. He's got a hip and bone condition. It's a chronic, uh, rare chronic disease. I've shared a little bit about that and my commitment to protecting people with pre-existing conditions like him. Now Senator McCaskill, her co-author, are calling him a prop. They said he's just a prop. Uh-huh. No, no. You owe my family an apology. You owe my son an apology. You owe my family an apology. You owe the voters of Missouri an apology, and they deserve better than you. I mean, who would attack a five-year-old boy who, whose father put him in a campaign ad to make a point not exactly germane to a policy stance that the politician in question wants to obscure? Who, who would do that? Sorry to pull you out of the debate there with that campaigning from the trail for a second. I wanted, though, to get to that issue. And I also wanted to diagnose what's really going on in Missouri is that you have two candidates who are clearly pitching their arguments to their constituency, and their constituency is a bit redder than the average state that's represented by a Democrat. Here in this clip, Claire McCaskill makes that clear. My dad hunting was something that we all knew we had to get out of the way because it was way more important to him at certain time of the year than any of us. And also, we had to get out of the way because he had a gun. So there's McCaskill clearly going after, did you have a daddy who was an asshole? Vote for me, voter. A similar dynamic is at play in North Dakota, Republican state represented by a Democrat, Democratic woman. Here was the incumbent Heidi Heitkamp. She used her opening statement to apologize for a massive misstep that her campaign made. Um, My campaign wrongly listed many names in a campaign ad that were not authorized and were inappropriate. I can only say this is a terrible mistake. Yeah, Heidi Heitkamp's going to lose. That was not good. I guess I could be wrong, but if I'm not, her opponent, Kevin Kramer, this guy is not establishing himself as the sharpest hoe in Fargo. Here, he takes a question from one of the debate moderators. The president has called the press the enemy of the people. How concerned are you about the erosion of trust in the press as an institution? And what responsibility does Congress have to censure the president's continued attacks on freedom of the press? Now, I never thought I'd hear a serious journalist suggest that we censor the president's speech. Kramer went on for about a minute in this vein, and his answer to the question ended this way. I don't think Congress has a responsibility to censor the president. We have three co-equal branches of government. We have a responsibility to oversee the presidency, the executive branch, and, and, and vice versa, but we shouldn't censor the president. 
I, I'm sorry, I just want to clarify. The word was censure, not censor. Censure. censure. I, I understand. Fifteen seconds to respond. Okay. To which Kramer said, My point is made. Very well. Yeah, but still. My point is made. He did not share his stance on violins in school or Soviet jewelry. Heidi Heitkamp tried to strike back. This apparently is how they mixed it up in North Dakota. In fact, Congressman Kramer almost blew the one provision that was critical in the new NAFTA, which was the grain grading provision, by speaking very rudely about our Canadian neighbors. The accusation of rudeness to Canadians went unanswered. And then Heitkamp tried to close her case by comparing herself to a dumbbell. A specific part of a dumbbell. And political thought right now is like a dumbbell. There's hard right and hard left. Congressman Kramer is going to be on the hard right. There's connective tissue in between that stops gridlock, and that's the moderates, like me, who try and get things done and do get things done. Okay. Now, for the last race I'll talk about, let me get all gubernatorial up in here. The Vermont governor's race features two serious-seeming qualified candidates. The Republican incumbent is Phil Scott. His challenger is Christine Hallquist. Hallquist could become the first transgender governor, though Scott is quite popular. I did like something I read about Hallquist in the New York Times today, I think it was. Two years ago, when Vermont's first and only gay bar came under some criticism by members of the Vermont transgender community, Hallquist sided with the bar over trans activists over the bar's name. Mr. Sister. Hallquist said, keep the name Mr. Sister. I believe the pro-Mr. Sister stance was the right one. The debate, however, centered on very practical issues with Hallquist criticizing Scott's lack of vision and Scott criticizing Hallquist's lack of political experience. Quite civil. It was one disappointing moment, however. It came during the obligatory say something nice about your opponent section. Here's what Scott said about Hallquist, who you should know spent years running the state's electric cooperative. Well, I admire uh, Christine's efforts when she was CEO of uh, Vermont Electric Co-op in keeping rates <coughs> low or keeping them the same, not increasing them over a, a four-year period, I believe it was, uh, much like I've tried to do uh, with our taxes here in Vermont. Come on, you have a transgender woman standing on the stage as a major party candidate for governor, and you're saying the most impressive thing she's done is achieve on a smaller scale what you're achieving for taxpayers every day? You, you don't comment about her bravery, her fortitude? I suppose maybe Governor Scott doesn't see it that way, but you know what? He should, and he should have said so. Unlike with so many other races, there would have been no political cost to doing so, and it actually would have raised the discourse a bit in the run-up to Election Day. And that's it for today's show. Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Pierre guesses that Heidi Heitkamp is saying her ultimate responsibility is to the military. Daniel's guessing she says it's to first responders. Let's hear what Heidi Heitkamp really said. There is no greater responsibility that I have to North Dakota than the post office. And I know that sounds very odd. The post office. TJ Raphael is Slate Podcast senior producer. Thought Heidi Heitkamp was going to say that her greatest priority is to keeping it real. The gist. Think of us like a decline bench. You could work the abs. You could blast those lower packs. You could just hook your legs underneath and then fall back and watch the iPhone fall from your pockets and regret not buying one of those rubbery bumper cases. Upuru dapuru dupuru and thanks for listening.